Before we get into this podcast, we just want to take a moment to let you know that there's a lot more previous as well as new content in addition to what you're hearing. Your best resource is the Insight Myanmar homepage, which can be found online at insightmyanmar.org. That's one word, Insight Myanmar, I-N-S-I-G-H-T-M-Y-A-N-M-A-R.org. We also have Facebook and Instagram pages of the same name, and we update those regularly. Here you can find background information, text and video, highlights of past shows, and previews of upcoming ones. Take a look later, because for now, sit back and enjoy what follows. and don't do really aggressive containment and mitigation, the number could go way up, many, many millions. Uh, to be isolating patients, emphasizing social distancing. Wuhan, uh, China's confirmed the coronavirus outbreak is now a pandemic. That COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. Italy, one of the worst affected countries, and business supply chains are being disrupted around the globe. This combination of people being It's confirmed the coronavirus outbreak is now a pandemic. We will realize, see an opportunity in this situation. Please make your compassion and kindness to the people. You have that done we are all protecting you. Due to COVID-19, the Marie become more support conscious. They can certainly use this time to, to grow in them. Kick out your negative minds. People can become closer to each other. Please send in Mitra to all over the world, all over the universe. See uh, change for sure. Brightest and less Work hard more and more for sending loving kindness. People can learn how to help each other, how to love, seeing new horizons of life. We do see some positive aspects of this corona crisis we in all the world. Sitting in we one see that, board. in a sense, that brings people also closer together. People getting closer together and watching out for each other. We have more time for our families, for the community, and time to meditate. Please make your compassion and loving kindness. It was kind of actually very warm and very, very kind of death. Stabilize the heart. This reminder of this uncertainty of life, when we don't know, see what we can do and what we cannot do, what we can accomplish and what we cannot. Remember peace in the face of suffering. This is a very different kind of show than any previous episode we've ever brought you on the Inside Myanmar podcast. Regular listeners may remember that a few months ago, we interrupted our usual run of sit-down interviews to produce a special series on the spread of coronavirus in Myanmar. In these episodes, we checked in with how monastics and practitioners were responding to the pandemic and highlighted the voices of meditators dealing with the world shutting down. As we were working to respond to the relevancy of that moment, itself no easy task for a skeleton crew volunteer team, 
Another historic moment engulfed the United States and resonated with people around the world, the Black Lives Matters protests over the killing of George Floyd. To back up for a moment and share some personal background, since the start of my endeavor to share stories of Buddhist meditation and culture, my guiding principle has fallen into a general category that I've tended to call Burma Dhamma. Indeed, this was the name of my first blog and Facebook page, and from documentaries to books, pilgrimages to presentations, and now this very podcast, my work has always been located somewhere within this broad range. But as the social justice movement developed, I felt a strong desire to step outside those parameters and explore the intersection between race and Dhamma, hoping to contribute positively to the nation's ongoing conversation. Getting technical, the design of this series template was largely influenced by the recent COVID-19 episodes we'd been working on. In other words, just as we asked a number of meditators variations on the question, how does your Dhamma practice help to inform your views and experience during this pandemic? I thought we'd ask a number of black meditators variations on a similar question regarding how their commitment to Dhamma has shaped their views on the unfolding protests, their personal experiences with racism, and systematic injustice in general. But as the work got underway, I soon realized how much greater this moment would be for us. Much of this inner reformulation was influenced by the depth of conversation flowing between my co-host, Zach Hessler, and Aisha Shaida Simmons, an African-American meditator who I had met some time ago at Damodara in Massachusetts and then Damagiri in India, both Vipassana centers in the tradition of SN Goenka. I had invited her to help shape our content on the series, and she enthusiastically came aboard as a co-collaborator. Communicating by WhatsApp voice messages, the hours logged between the three of us on a single day were at times equivalent to binge-watching a full season of a new Netflix show. Through these talks, it became apparent that the work was not just outer, in terms of the content we were bringing, but also inner, in terms of the honest reflection that needs to be done within. And this is a common refrain you'll hear from our guests today, who all affirm that what is most needed now is not only rapid action or legal changes, but rather hard conversations across communities in conjunction with the sometimes painful work of inner contemplation. In any case, as my conversations with Aisha and Zach continued, not only did I have a better understanding of some of the areas I hoped this series could explore, but I also came to examine my own role in the conversation. As it developed further, I began to face some real trepidation if I was up to this task of venturing so far beyond those familiar constructs of Burmadama. Living outside America for as long as I have, I'm not so in tune either with current race relations or the state of American Buddhism, and I feared that a well-intended effort could hit pothole after pothole of naivete misunderstanding, and potential missteps. And while I have my own personal history as a minority facing discrimination and prejudice in America, experiencing anti-Semitism has been a part of my own lifelong journey. I have not been impacted by racism. And so I tread carefully and humbly with what follows. A second shift in my thinking came as I heard several guests, both in this as well as upcoming episodes in the series, describing ways they felt stunted or blocked by meditation organizations led largely by white Americans. Throughout years of not being seen, except that is when the organization happened to be in need of a token meditation teacher of color to showcase, concerns and suggestions of African-American meditators and teachers were consistently ignored. And while the context where these stories took place were Vipassana centers and mindfulness retreats, their stories were eerily familiar to many of those big organizations now under scrutiny, from media companies to major corporations to professional sports leagues. 
On reflection, however, it's not surprising that American mindfulness and Vipassana organizations manifest some of the same unexamined biases and privileges as society at large, a point which the interviewees on this show make several times in the episode that follows. The United States has been witnessing an explosion of bravery by individuals speaking truth to power, standing up against racism and for social justice, and within many different social and economic institutions, from well-known sports franchises to giant corporations. While these acts may at times be confrontational and even put an individual job security in jeopardy, they highlight uncomfortable and too long ignored truths that society must finally face, both individually and collectively. The nature of those challenges to power and to the status quo was at times uncomfortable. Heck, the nature of any confrontation is by definition uncomfortable. But mostly they were offered in the spirit of positive change to push the needle towards initiating, at long last, an honest and open dialogue about what has been avoided or unseen for far too many years. In the same spirit, even if some of the words that follow may provoke discomfort or unease, I hope that this episode can be a platform for bringing a similar sort of conversation about entrenched practices, protocols, and attitudes within the Vipassana and mindfulness communities. The guests you are about to hear from all eagerly agreed to speak on this episode, willing to share openly about a sensitive topic that has taken them a lifetime of difficult inner work to come to grips with and learn how to respond with compassion. Because how can you really make sense of society's systematic abuse and oppression just because of the color of your skin? These speakers were hit with a blunt edge of racism early in childhood, in one case coming to grips with the overt prohibition that their family was not allowed into an amusement park, and in another case, it being assumed that he didn't belong in an advanced math class he qualified for. And these discriminatory experiences have continued on in both explicit and implicit ways throughout their lives, including into their involvement with spiritual communities at the hands of white meditators, including Dhamma teachers, as you will hear in detail in the interviews that follow. A core message of our speakers is that both the beneficiaries of privilege, as well as those who feel the sting of discrimination, need to face the discomfort of this unjust system. BIPOC, meaning Black and Indigenous people of color, are the recipients of this discomfort every day whether they like it or not, while people of privilege need to start examining their own role in perpetuating it. Using the profound tools of meditation, both sides can find the courage to look inside at their own wounds. The speakers all strongly condemn what one refers to as spiritual bypass. The term refers to the avoidance of certain uncomfortable realities by assuming that because one has a deep spiritual practice, there is no need to deal directly with worldly matters, such as challenging emotions, difficult personal relationships, or social injustices, since one's meditation practice will automatically take care of it at some point. But the meditators you'll hear from assert that this thinking is dishonest and counterproductive, and believe that honestly confronting these issues both internally and externally will help lead to what may be some difficult conversations, but can ultimately lead to lasting positive change. For all the commonalities that run through this episode's talks, the individual experience also reveals divergences. For example, the speakers question whether Dhamma should spread organically into black communities or rather through targeted efforts. And the guests also discuss what kind of personal engagement in the current BLM movement is most relevant in their experience as meditators. Anyway, those are just some of the important and thought-provoking issues the first three speakers discuss in this first episode of our ongoing series exploring race, social justice, and Dhamma practice. The three guests you're about to hear from certainly give us a good start, and we hope everyone will listen to their powerful words with an open heart and mind. 
I'll bow out now so you can hear from them directly. First up, we hear from Victoria Robertson. She was the first Black American appointed senior assistant teacher under SN Goenka. Please note that in her talk, she makes reference to a 2003 book by Ian Hetherington called Realizing Change, Vipassana Meditation in Action, for which she was asked to write an essay titled Colors. I'm from Roanoke, Virginia, and my family's from there as well. Eventually, I moved to New York, and then I found out about Vipassana under S.N. Goenka on one of my jobs. And this was in the early 90s. 1993, like December of 1993 in Massachusetts, Shelburne Falls. Well, the course was really extremely hard. My first Vipassana course, I think midway through, I thought to myself, I'm just going to do everything correctly. I'm going to follow all the rules, all the timings, all that, because I'm never coming back again. So I'll try to maximize on this course if possible. But towards the end of the course, I start understanding things a little bit better. And I think what really, really changed my perspective was the lunches. When lunchtime would come around, I would hear, and we knew that people were serving us, you know, and they were volunteers. And about maybe four, fifth, sixth day or something, I said, wow. People are volunteering just to do this for us, you know, cooking meals and keeping the space clean and all of that. And I was just amazed. I never heard of anything like that for a full 10-day course with no charge. I mean, you would, of course, leave a donation, but but basically it was anything that you wanted to leave, yes, or you could, could afford to leave. So when I realized about serving, I come from a, like a service-oriented family in a sense that uh, my father was, uh, is, he's still alive, he's always community-minded uh, person. And, and both my parents were school teachers, their parents before them were school teachers, and their parents before them. So we, we always were, you know, serving people. So the next course that I did, I served. I mean, I was looking forward to that because I wanted to, you know, pay back, pay it forward to the next students coming. So I sat and served and sat and served. And prior to that, I met a man uh, in my area. I lived in Harlem at the time. And he introduced me to the I Ching, a Chinese-based teaching. And so from that teaching, I wanted to learn meditation. So I went all around to all the meditation places. Now, I'm, I'm jumping a little. I'm going back before I took my first Vipassana course or I heard about Vipassana. Uh, I just needed a meditation technique so I could learn to focus and also probably not think of things so superficially to go a little bit beneath the surface. And as I kept taking them, coming back to having taken a few Vipassana courses, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I thought it was, I said, this is, this is the best thing I, that's ever happened to me. You know, following the Eightfold Noble Path, the, all of this, everything was new to me. So just considering everything about your life, reconsidering, uh, does that belong to you? You know, if you see uh, a safety pin somewhere, you just pick it up or paper clip or a fruit tree that's in someone else's yard, but you want to pluck the fruit. And does that belong to you? You know, uh, seems like this should be obvious. No, it doesn't. But, you know, in life, you just take certain liberties 
and those type of things. Or is that a good thing to say? Would that be helpful to a certain degree? I just started noticing diff- uh, things that I became more aware and conscious of my surroundings. I think my first understanding, a deeper understanding of racism was when I was eight years old. I saw on TV that there were amusement parks in our area. And I didn't notice uh, when they showed the little kids on uh, whatever ride it was that they were all white. I, I didn't recognize, really think about that. And then I, that commercial will come on TV and I would say, like to my mom and dad, that I want to go. And I remember them not saying anything. And then I, I was thinking, well, maybe they just didn't hear me or maybe they were, I guess, if in a kid's mind, preoccupied thinking about something else. So the commercial came on again, and I said the same thing again. And maybe this happened two or three times. And finally, they told me that I guess we were called Negroes, that we weren't allowed to go to those amusement parks. And I thought seriously that they were kidding. I was like, you must be kidding. You know, they were like, no, we're not kidding. And I was sort of like, how, how, how can that be possible? It's on TV. And they were saying, well, this is the way it is. And I said, why would that happen? And they said, you know, well, it's ignorance. And so, well, what type of ignorance are, what, you know, as far as a little kid could say. Then I slowly saw that my parents had no control over this. So I figured if they don't have any control, well, what, I can't look to them to do anything, you know, uh, help me or what. I mean, it was just an understanding that you started seeing that you that things were not probably going to go well in your life if this were the case. And then, okay, you know, you just see the town or city that we grew up in, there was a separation, you know, whites on one side, blacks on the other side, and there were conflicts, things that were uneasy. I don't think anything directly happened to me personally, but I was affected. You're always affected by uh, racism as a black person in some form of fashion. Our parents tried very hard to uh, protect us against that, uh, meaning that we had our own activities, our own lifestyle, and that type of thing. But, of course, there was a limitation to everything. I mean, everything, in a sense. As long as you stayed in your own space, I think it was okay. It was okay. But, you know, of course, when there was desegregation of schools, it seemed like we always had to move to the other school, integration didn't work. It only worked in one direction. It didn't work in both directions. And, and I think some of our civil rights leaders realized that later and felt very sad that they had pushed for integration. But what else to do? You know, seemingly, that's all we really knew. But I knew going to college, going different places, I went to a predominantly white college, very uncomfortable. Um, not not a happy time in my life, and I think it was something my parents wanted me to do because they thought that college was so great or something. And so, I don't know, you just live with it in a sense. But I knew that it was something, it was a glitch inside of me. And once I started understanding the uh, Pashna, the technique, that meditation was good for you, I started addressing some of the issues that I thought were causing me misery. And so I remember one particular course that I took was a 20-day course, 
And I, I think I, maybe I had an incident. Racism comes up on jobs. You know, there was so much discrimination. You know when you're not treated fairly or you're not able to make the same amount of money as, you know, your, your counterpart who happened to be white uh, or just not considered for uh, a certain advancement when you've been there for a period of time. So I took this 20-day course, and I, I think I went into the course with the intention of understanding, trying to understand where what was going on. Why did white people have these issues with us when we really didn't do anything to them? And then I, I, I think this when I came out, I had an answer. Now this answer was simplistic, but it satisfied me at the time. And the answer I had was, well, when you're miserable yourself, you don't keep your misery to yourself. You can spread it to others. So then I felt some empathy for white people. I said, well, they must be miserable. That's why they do it. So that satisfied me for a little while. As a black person and a black person from my type of background, my father ran for public office when, you know, I was a teenager. We were always in white spaces for some time. It was uncomfortable, but it was, I was accustomed to it. And so I, unless it was just downright unfair, grossly unfair, I, I could deal with it. Especially if I knew I came for a purpose. You know, and sometimes I think that saved me with the meditation, meaning I didn't turn it into a fellowship or uh, join the club, you know, a meditation club, so to speak. I came there to seriously learn meditation. So I followed all the rules, regulations, and uh, timetables. I served a lot, so I met, I met a lot of friends. Now, you know, you can have white friends. I've had white friends for many times, you know, uh, for as long as I could remember as a young adult. But that doesn't mean you go home with them. That doesn't mean you really learn that parent, know that parents or, or vacation with them. You go there for a purpose and you accomplish that purpose if that's what you want to do. So no, I didn't go there for social reasons. And I think that helped me. And, and when I took my first, first Vipassion course, I was 38 already. So I was deadly serious. And, you know, a 10-day course is not a joke. I mean, it's really hard. And you're taking time away from, you know, earning money and, and this type of thing. So I was very serious. I didn't get into those thoughts. But, you know, of course, things will come up about race, racism. But I didn't expect them to solve that problem for me. When I went to my courses, I realized the teachers weren't, they couldn't address that. I learned the technique. I was so friendly and accommodating. Uh, you know, of course, people were very nice, but also it gave me an opportunity to observe them. And I grew up in a very professional family, meaning we took our jobs, whatever they were, seriously. And I saw that they would not have the answer. They lived in a whole total uh, world. And they weren't trying to address the African-American problem or, <laughs> or anything like that. So... Um, you know, I just did what I needed to do for myself. But coming back again, I was so friendly, all this. So, of course, they asked me to come and serve. But I had to make a decision. I said, do you want to, you know, serve, be friendly with these people, or do you really want to learn, go deeper with your meditation? So they asked me to serve 
long term, like in Massachusetts or somewhere in the United States, I knew for myself that I wouldn't get much out of it. Meaning, I don't know. It would be hard to just know why I felt that way. I, I, I don't want to judge anyone, but I just knew it. So I said, okay, I think I'll go and serve long time in India. At least I would get to meet S.N. Goenka. And I can see what his volition is, you know, and I can tell other black people in a sense if they would like to take these courses. I can tell them that I met the person who started it as opposed to white people who are in charge of centers in the U.S. That was great. I mean, but I think also it was great because I couldn't speak the language, so I didn't get involved in any of the daily um, things that can happen when groups of people gather together. <laughs> you know, I would just do my practice and serve, do what they told me to do. And so in that way, and then we would see Goenka G, you could go see him anytime you wanted, just about when he was on campus. And it was very comforting. And I think I saw in him, I saw my father in him, and I wanted to, I saw how his family helped him when we did the same thing with my father. So I took the practice very seriously during those times and felt very grateful that I had that opportunity. Now, were the some of the teachers there in India prejudiced against African Americans? Yes, very much so. But... I don't know, um, maybe because it's, they were prejudiced secondhand, um, meaning they learned this from Westerners or maybe, you know, and I wasn't African, I, maybe because Africans go there. But, you know, I, I just didn't feel the type of thing that I would feel here in the United States. In Damagiri, well, I realized that was true ignorance. If they, you know, what they knew about African-Americans, they did not know. And maybe they have a prejudice, well, I won't say maybe they have a prejudice against dark skin, you know, but I realized that they didn't know. In America, I felt like white Americans knew what they were doing. I mean, although unconscious, meaning they didn't, they hadn't realized the truth within themselves, but we had a history. That's the difference. I didn't have a history with Indians. I have a history with white Americans. Well, the first time I went, I went for six months. And then right after that, I came home to make some money uh, to go back. And I was there for about a year. And then I, I, I would come back and forth for like yatras or special, special occasions. And I was appointed an AT to be an assistant teacher in 2002 or so. So in 2009, they dedicated Dhamma, it's a place called Dhamma Patana. It's a global pagoda near Mumbai. And so they were having world leaders, everyone coming, leaders in India. And that was in 2000, and they were planning it in 2008. That was the year that Obama won. So for the first time, the Indians now understood what an African-American was. So the Indians at Damagiri anyway, <laughs> you know. And so someone on the committee 
said, do we have any African-American ATs? Of course, I was the only one at that time. And so they asked me to come to that inauguration of this pagoda. And it was kind of sad because, you know, you have over 3,000 people there, maybe four or five black people. Oh, well, black Americans. Well, they were, no, they were black people from different parts of the world. What happened was they invited me to come. I wasn't going to come because I had gone so many times, maybe 10 times before. And I was like, well, you know, to be the token AT, I'm not sure if I want to do that. But I think they might have already anticipated that. So they said they would pay my way. <laughs> so, I, I, you know, when they said they would pay my way, I was like, uh, you know, I, I called my father. I said, should I do this? You know, I mean, it's really short notice. Usually, you know, most of the time I prepare to go to India, you know, three or four months ahead of time. And, and I said, should I pay my own way or should I, you know, let them pay my way? He said, I think you should let them pay your way. You know, they want you to come. So I went. And then after that, one of the ATs mentioned to me, she was going to be an AT. I think they were preparing her to be an AT. And she's African from Kenya, but had lived in England for many years. And she proposed, uh, we had been speaking about it for a little while, emailing, and she came up with a title uh, because people of color just didn't sound like that was a Vipassana way of doing things. So uh, she came up with the title African Heritage. So that would mean I'm a people of African descent from all over the world. So I arranged it on this end because I had, my father had a camp in Virginia, founded it through JC organization for people with mental and uh, emotional challenges, physical challenges. But in the off season, People rented the camp. So for about 10 years or so, we put on 10-day courses there twice a year. So the people who lived in the area who happened to do Vipassana, uh, we all set that course up in around 2002. So I knew how to set up courses, and I knew how to get a registration person. So I asked a few of the meditators if they would help me out. Would they be open to being involved in a project like this? And, um, yeah, you know, I I used to have a lot of group sittings at my home, uh, so I knew a lot of meditators. So we set this this course up remotely. And, you know, first we had to get permission from uh, Gwankaji. I wrote a long letter to him and all of this, and he said yes. So we set it up, and that took place. So that took place in the thoughts that perhaps we could have those courses here in America, too, at, at certain centers. And that would attract more black people, you know. That would be a way of conducting outreach by holding these courses or maybe one course a year. We got a lot of pushback, especially from Americans, that that wasn't necessary. We didn't need that. I was very surprised. And I didn't really know where that was coming from. I guess I didn't want to know where it was coming from. But the course was held and it was successful. You know, we were not allowed to have the courses here in America. And it's coming from all the ATs here in America. The excuses were we don't need that. Uh, that would cause a separation. 
that would bring racism out more. These are typical excuses that we would use uh, before in any situation that involved race. I mean, centers are no different from, you know, our, our own systems. You know, systemic racism is, you know, is a part of our country. So I would imagine it made them uncomfortable. They said that it was against Dhamma. I think that that's what happens in our meditation groups because you run away from what's uncomfortable a lot of times. I didn't start my path until I was 38, so I have been uncomfortable with you know, race for my entire life. And, and this was something that I said, if there's a, a truth, a real truth, well, I must come out of this if it's possible. And, and you know, it's so interesting the way I came out of it was through it. You know, me promoting uh, African Heritage course, I already, already knew once you start promoting something that as a black person, the lone black person, your chances of succeeding are probably not very high. You know, and you get singled out and anything can happen after that. And it did. But it was also my own salvation because I didn't give up meditating. You know, it was too much a part of me. Well, I felt like, I look, I was serving. I was at AT for seven years. That meant I served a lot of people, right? I mean, I would do like, a, sometimes I would even serve five courses a year or the minimum was three. And I went to Israel. I went to, I went to different countries serving even. So that meant I hardly ever served African-Americans, maybe one or two if they showed up in the courses. And every time you sit down with going to G, he would always say, you must spread Dhamma to your community voice. And I, would, I mean, he said it to everyone. It wasn't particular. So that's all I, I thought I was doing. And I came up with an idea. The American community had an idea. They had a, uh, I don't know if you remember this or you have heard of it, but there was a, a movie or a film that came out, it was called Dama Brothers. And it showed incarcerated men, black men predominantly, taking the Papashna course. And the uh, assistant teacher and the male server was, they were white, you know, and, and so people put up flyers everywhere. And I said, this is not a good idea because what you're saying, what people will see, what other white people will see is that, you know, this, you're serving black criminals. They want, they're not going to see, I mean, the rare person, maybe every hundredth person will see that you're serving, oh, that's nice, it's great, you know, this is very beneficial for everyone. But I said, it's, it's not going to be seen that way. And I said, if you think that's going to attract African-Americans, it will not. Because first of all, it makes it seem the African-American community are all incarcerated or something. And black Americans, all black Americans don't see themselves that way. You know, and they thought it was comparable to doing time doing Vipassana. And I said, well, I don't, I don't think it's really like that. But they wouldn't listen to me. You know, I think I was there as a token, and, and that's, that was it. They didn't think any deeper than that. And, 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 you know, these people I really like, you know. I mean, in a sense, it makes me almost feel uncomfortable talking about it because I don't think they consciously knew that's what they were doing. We were all at Damagiri at that time. 
and he was an assistant teacher. I don't know, you know, where he is or if he's still alive or anything. He was going to write a book on realizing change from having taken Vipassana. But I was the only black person there, so that was who I was. I was realizing change in a sense that I stopped assuming that white people knew what they were doing, you know, that they were rude. For the first time, I was able to understand just unconscious behavior. You know, I, I had studied a little bit of psychology, but not that much. But what unconscious, and I can see from my unconsciousness what I've done, so I realized they were doing the same thing. It didn't bring me any that closer, but I saw them more human. And that we have a long way to go. And, you know, and that I could stop blaming myself for whatever would happen because, as you know, they were afraid that at that particular time, I mean, things have changed so rapidly, you know, since everything that's taken place with George Floyd and all that. I don't think I've ever heard uh, white people call themselves white people, even, you know, and <laughs> that this should stop and why is this happening? And yes, they have white privilege. Uh, before that was not not something you would talk about at all. So I think that um, Ian just thought, oh wow, he didn't realize that probably what I was going to write was going to be that strong, but he still wanted to place it in the book. And he asked me at the time, did I want it to be another name? And I said, no, I don't want it to be another name, but it's your book, you know. I, I mean, I'm kind of liberal. I'm not trying to win any gold stars. I just want to come out of my misery, you know, so that was that. I thought honesty was the best policy. The content of my essay was how I felt about being black in America. And I just said that, you know, most black people don't like white people. Why? Basically, I'm paraphrasing what I'm saying, but what I wrote, uh, why? Because they are not likable. You know, they keep everything for themselves, and and then you, you know, the, or whatever's left over you may uh, have. But it's there, you know, you learn agape love. And I'm really paraphrasing because I don't have the book in front of me. But basically, you know, that. This, but you're in misery because you are having these reactions to racism for being a second-class citizen, treated like a second-class and when I first heard Goenkaji talk about reactions as opposed to response, I sat up and I realized I could respond as opposed to reacting, which was harmful to me. I really didn't care. I didn't, you know, like this his book, that's what he wanted to do. I mean, uh, uh, the teachers, the community is very complicated. You know, I mean, it it was nicer when I remain when I was a student, as opposed to it. Well, it was seemed complicated to me. Uh, maybe because I was always by myself, you know, the only black person. But um, it just didn't seem like it was a free flow. You know, like you could be that honest. So I didn't know whatever his reasons were. You know, it it just didn't matter. I wrote it. Whatever anybody got out of it, I even forgot about it, tell you the truth, until now. The impression or the feeling was that, you, you know, maybe it was, it was very uncomfortable. So it, instead of, it, you know, a person saying, well, this is uncomfortable because this is something that I'm not dealing with, 
it would be like, oh, this is uncomfortable and Victoria has a problem, you know, which I, you know, several people would say that to me when I would bring up race from ATs and they were like, you're going to be labeled a racist. And I thought that was funny, but I mean, kind of laughable, but I, I really realized I couldn't articulate. If they could think like that, well, how would I explain anything to them? I mean, it's just pointless. Something, my intuition telling me a big change is going to happen. Some big change is going to happen. You know, and we have the COVID-19. I was surprised that we would have this type of time off. And I think this is the, the crux of it all. Why the Black Lives Movement could step again, even during this time, and because of the downtime that we all have experienced because of COVID-19. People didn't have anywhere else to put their attention. One thing about if we go back to racism and in my experience in life, I realized at a certain point that, uh, you know, the white community is very pushed to accomplish. You know, it's like about accomplishing everything. And they have a hierarchy in their own communities about, uh, you know, where they're going to live and education and all that. And so they're always very busy. Even I realized with this with the meditation centers, you know, it's not like people are, have, a, time, have a, a lot of energy to develop inwardly because they always build in new centers. They're very busy. So if you're very busy, you don't have a lot of time to contemplate what's happening and how it affects others. So COVID-19, to me, we, everyone was in this together all over the world. And then George Floyd is killed in the manner that he's killed. And, you know, we all have cell phones. So that picture there was taken in very deeply. Prior to that, I think it would have just been, okay, if everyone was busy trying to get to work, trying to do all the things, hit those deadlines and do what they need to do, it would have just been another, you know, bad thing that happens and that, you know, we would keep moving on. And they would keep happening. But I can see that everyone had to take a time out, a pause. COVID-19 caused us to pause against our will. Well, meditation, meditation supposed to lead you to go beyond mind and matter. Okay. Ultimately. I didn't do meditation to calm myself down. You know, I don't think I would have uh, lasted very long trying to do that. The goal is to go beyond mind and matter. If you're very busy, you can't do that. But I can see that in our societies of the world that we haven't gone beyond mind and matter. So it's always this fight or control or dominance or revenge or justice, no peace. All of that, we will always be fighting for something because we don't know who we are, truly are. And, you know, once I asked Goenkaji about racism, and he said, this thing of superiority and inferiority must go. But laws cannot change people's hearts. 
Only Dhamma can do that. Because if laws could change, it would have happened a long time ago, correct? So it's, it hasn't. It hasn't changed. I don't think it will ever change. We will evolve a little bit here, a little bit there. But until we are evolve as human beings, and which is a huge task to see that, you know, you are not your body. You are not your material body. You know, you are something else that we all are have in common. But this has to be explored. Well, I think these, you know, spiritual organizations, say, let's, let me just stick with Vipassana since I know that they have to have courses that are close to an inner city, you know, that people can get to by public transportation. That they can learn about meditation. They can find out about it, even if they only take one or two courses. You get you closer to understanding quiet and what peace is and also serving others. Say, for instance, if there were, which I, I told the, you know, the leaders, they call themselves leaders now, as, as opposed to a chariots uh, a few years back, or maybe they are interchangeable, the words, I'm not sure, but that, you know, if there is a, a, a course where it's mostly black people are attending, okay, and white people are serving, well, things are going to come up, probably, because they came up for me when I was serving all white folks, you know, so it will come up. But you can go and sit with that three times a day. And then you will understand that there is racism, that I do hold biases. I mean, look, black people already know that they don't like white people. Okay, they already know that they have issues in some ways concerning, you know, social injustice. But I'm not certain if a lot of white people until now have considered themselves having biases or being even racist. You have to become aware of it. But some people, and like the Vipassana organization, think that, you know, you just continue, it's just continuous just working on yourself. And if you continue to work on yourself, well, you will shine light <laughs> as you go out. But you always go out in your same faces. <laughs> you know? So... I see that there's still separation. We work together as a black and white in America, but we mostly don't live together. So there's a separation. I was trying to tell them, yes, try to have a course where people, like I said, can use public transportation. It doesn't have to be in the woods somewhere. You don't have to have it be quiet. I mean, like, quiet. You can hardly hear a twig, you know, break. That's not necessary. We're not running away from sounds and, and, you know, moderate disturbances. We're trying to meet them and just be with that. Be with the agitation. Be with the being uncomfortable. And, and see that, it, you know, you don't have to run away, perhaps. You might have to meet with it over and over. But you would definitely, that's growth. You know, by the way, I'm not with the organization anymore. So I have a Vipassana background. I did Vipassana, you know, I practiced it for 18 years. 
So, you know, once that stopped, I didn't have the urge to go out and find another group. I learned the technique. I wanted to go deeper in the technique. So that was like nearly 10 years ago. So I just continued my practice in my daily life. You know, one hour in the morning, one hour in the evening. I felt like I would make progress. Before I, I, I walked away from it, I, I checked myself. And if I thought that I needed to still be with them, you know, to, under that regiment, I would have stayed. But I didn't because I realized that they weren't hearing me. They didn't see me. They didn't. We weren't on the same page. And that was particularly painful. But it wasn't a pain that I wasn't familiar with. And the practice, the whole thing is about the practice. The practice kept me sane. The practice, I've done it incorrectly too, you know, in in my career of practicing, which is like 27 years. So, of course, you've done things incorrectly. But I just trusted that I've done all that I could do. And I can't do no more. I mean, I, I can't get any better than this or worse than this. You know, I mean, they didn't throw me out of the organization. I could have come back, you know, but I was like, when do you ever know if the practice works for you or not? If you go back all the time, you know, and you need approval all the time. I don't know. So I said, let me try this. And if I completely fail in meaning, let me try just meditate on my own just realize I don't have a group, go to my job, come back. It was a big change. It took a few years to even come down from the reference, you know, my reference point would be the Vipassana because, you know, being an AT, you have to pour so much of your own energy into to that life. So I said, let me check it out. I can see if I fall totally apart, can't handle myself, I don't have that kind of pride. I would definitely go back. But let me grapple with it. Let me try. And then one day when I was walking on, I walked on the beach because I live near a beach. And I was walking on the boardwalk and I just, I was so unsettled after what happened and the way I was spoken to, et cetera, et cetera. All I knew was to keep coming back to my breath. I had a job, so my respite was to be at the job. But when I was alone or when I was just working on my own or coming home or going to work or before sleep, I would keep coming back to my breath to keep my sanity. And so one time I was walking on the boardwalk and I kept coming back to my breath. And for one instant, when I came back, because when I would come back to my breath, my mind would snatch back, go right back to my thoughts. And then this one instant, it didn't. And I suddenly realized, oh, you were never an assistant teacher, just like you were never a cheerleader. That's not who you are. You are just beyond mind and matter. Which I didn't say those words at that time. I mean, it was just because there was no reference point. I didn't come back to a thought process or a stream of consciousness thing for for some moments. And from there, I was able to practice in a different way. But it's a different way because it's a different perspective, I guess. And, you know, to this day, that's been my routine. That's what I do. And, you know, like I, I have to, you know, 
cut out a whole lot of other things in my life that, you know, would take my attention away. But that's been okay because then that prepared me for the COVID, believe it or not, because I, I live alone. I live in a little community separated from other communities because of the beach and everything. And I just treated this whole COVID thing like um, I've taken 60-day courses, a long course, like I was on a course. And if if a day or two I only did meditation, didn't hardly eat or didn't clean up well, that was okay. And, I mean, it was hard because a couple of the people in, on my job, they were sick with COVID. They recovered. But I knew that only meditation would get me through it. As a follow-up to Victoria's interview, the following is a very short clip of an interesting recollection she has about her essay, Colors. But before that, I wanted to take a moment to share some relevant personal background. As a young meditator, I read her essay, which for me stood out from all the other essays appearing in the book. So when we began this series, I wanted to seek out its author, although I had no idea that she was forced to use a pseudonym, as you heard. But now, here is Victoria's clip. And then you kind of figured it was me. That's that's really wild. As soon as you, I got off, you know, I read your note. I went, I have a number of books on my, uh, you know, in my bookshelves. I, my eye went directly to that book. Let me see where that book is. And my eye went directly there. So then I knew that I said, well, yeah, you have to do this. It's a good thing to do. You know, when I reread it, and again, it's hard to remember. It's hard to re- for me to remember a lot of things now, but... Uh, that were earlier in my practice. But the word hate was in there several times. I was like, that's strong. (laughs) Next, we check in with Joshua B. Alafia, a Taoist and insight meditation teacher, as well as an author and film director. He leads Mindfulness Mondays, Tao Tuesdays sessions on Zoom. Please refer to the links in this episode description for details. You can also visit his website, www.joshuabealafia.com. That's J-O-S-H-U-A-B-E-E-A-L-A-F-I-A.com. I was born in Boston. Both my parents were into meditation. So it was something I was exposed to really young. I have a perhaps unique or semi-unique upbringing in that both my parents were into different gurus. My father was into Mayor Baba, and my mother, when I was little, was into Swami Muktananda. So I grew up with those influences. I moved to Texas at a young age and uh, later went to New Jersey for high school. So I... I really spent a lot of my youth bouncing around and um, being the new kid. And I think that also kind of brought me into an introspective place um, really young. So it was kind of a natural progression as I started meditating as a teenager, something I kind of rebelled against. And then later, like towards the end of my high school, I started meditating. And um, I've been doing it ever since. My first exposure really was from my mother. And she gave me first a, a mantra that she had received in TM. 
it was Ng. And uh, I didn't respond well to her. I, I just didn't like repeating Ng, 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 Ng over and over. And so she gave me Soham from uh, the Swami Muktananda's tradition. And um, that really resonated with me. So I guess my first exposure was like from like a Vedic style. And then I kind of hit the ground running. I also, My mother also gave me this book called Urban Shamanism that was about Hawaiian shamanism. And it had some meditation, some more visualized driven meditations. And so I started experimenting with those. And, you know, I'm like 19 at the time. But um, I had really powerful experiences. And so I was, you know, I was hooked. And then uh, I think it was the second wave of Tibetans started coming, Tibetan teachers. And um, I kind of bounced around different Tibetan teachers and then landed with uh, Sogyal Rinpoche in the late 90s. And I was in my late 20s. And I'm skipping. I also had explored uh, some Sufi meditation. I read, uh, I was into Arye Kaplan. And he has these beautiful books, Kabbalah and Meditation and the Bible and Meditation. So just like reading from books, I was ex exploring some of the mystical Judaism's path. So I, I had a lot of different tastes, and a lot of different experiences. And then, you know, Dzogchen really blew me away like i had never had a teacher transmit and show me empty mind the way Sogyal rinpoche did then later uh, namakai norbu also one of my great teachers and then around 2005 i started going to new york insight i'd been living in new york and gina sharp had been having these really popular people of color sits every Monday. Sorry, the first Monday of the month, I believe it was. So I started attending those and uh, ended up taking some classes at New York Inside. And she was just a really great teacher, a real master teacher. And at a certain point, she was like, you know what, you should apply to this uh, teacher program. And I was had a lot of resistance. I was like, I, I really don't see myself teaching meditation. Thank you. And she's like, no, just, you know, apply and, you know, if you get in, then take it from there. And I was like, wow, well, okay. And it was for a scholarship, too. So I applied because I had this, I did have this real desire to teach incarcerated youth because, uh, you know, I was an adventurous adolescent and I, you know, was friends with uh, kids who we just, liked getting in trouble we didn't hurt people but we we did really stupid things like take parents cars out and you know just lots of and even dangerous things so I, I really wanted to share meditation with youth so Jane actually linked me with the lineage project I ended up getting into the teaching program the community dharma leaders through spirit rock and um went right into teaching like immediately working with the lineage project which works with system involved youth system vulnerable youth both incarcerated and 
as they come out and uh, kids in you know, high schools and, and junior highs who were just on the verge or had been somehow involved. And um, that was one of the most rewarding experiences of my life. I did it for eight years. And uh, I, I started teaching in New York Insight and ended up starting a group with Sebene Selassie, who's a people of color and allies. Started in her living room and she, you know, her, she has a Italian husband. So it, was, it would be weird to have like a people of color sit uh, and be like, uh, yeah, Federico, uh, you have to leave. So that actually became popular and, and went through different phases. Uh, Semenay actually had to walk away from it because she became the executive director of New York Insight. So I just went with it, went forward with it, and uh, we found a home at the Brooklyn Zen Center, which I thought was really beautiful. So I grew up and enter Sangha experience, and they gave us uh, two nights a month. And I taught there until I left in uh, 2018. I moved to Chicago to maintain my 50-50 custody of my son and uh, started a Southside Insight. So I've been teaching there and I've also been teaching in the Taoist tradition. Didn't really mention that, but Taoist meditation and Taoist practice has been a huge part of my practice of the last, really the last 10 years. So, you know, Teaching from the Theravada lens, it's such intense mind-heart purification that really was something I felt like was really important to, to bring to the youth, as well as uh, people who have gone through a lot of trauma, especially the people of color movement. So I, I've really been focused on that. Um, really, the Brahma Viharas being my kind of my central practice and teachings. Really, just as we confront all the wounds in our heart, you know, I, I think that whenever I would bring forgiveness meditation to incarcerated folks, youth and young adults, that was always a real powerful one. I mean, you know, some of these kids have been through really like hell realms on earth. I mean, you know, for instance, one uh, talked about, you know, watching his mother turn tricks and, you know, his mother was an addict and he would actually have to even sell drugs to his mother. And so his forgiveness practice was really diesel because he had to really, really stretch out to forgive so he had gone through so much trauma a lot of the transformation was so internal and subtle that it wasn't like you know we we'd have a magical class and i'd leave there feeling like yes i reached them a lot of times you know it was it was more of a, a struggle and I'd, I'd really have to lean into the movement teaching tai chi and qigong for most of the time and then a short meditation at the end but it was times like you know for instance one student would always be reading his comic book you know when i go to his group and i'd always offer it but he would always kind of sit back and then finally one day you know i i offered and he was like yeah yeah i'll try it and he ended up becoming one of my most engaged students and 
he went through a lot of facing a lot of his his wounds and sadly you know there was an incident where a staff member was speaking very disrespectful to him and he lost his temper and um i wrote up an incident report and uh we ended up getting fired from that, <laughs> that place because of the politics unfortunately so there's yeah there's a lot of stories that you know a lot of things happened out of my direct awareness but then later would be revealed or towards the end it was very it's very hard work <laughs> for anyone who's contemplating i strongly recommend it and also don't think that you're going to be like a pied piper or something like you know you're going to like just like you hold this tool that you're going to share with people and they are going to just transform before your very eyes it's uh it's a lot more gritty than that and a lot more subconscious and a lot more perhaps happening on another dimension or something it's happening really deep in the subconscious a lot of it and um there's a lot of detox as we all go through in our practice and just imagine kids been uh taken advantage of in every conceivable way including uh you know all kinds of abuse mental physical sexual and systematic abuse being a lot of them uh being punished for mental illness so yeah it's 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 very rewarding work and it's really hard work <laughs> very hard. as a black meditator in the west i've have found it it's been a it's been a rocky road in in the meditation world you know we live in a country where we suffer from cultural narcissism there's all these very nuanced narcissisms in our society and so you know mentioning empathy which is impossible when you have narcissistic personality disorder compassion is something you know it's like a really uh it's a far road it's it's a distance from where people are are starting so it's been interesting you know i really love how angel kilto williams presents racism as a mental illness it's a, and a personality disorder that really run true as i've examined it and you know i could tell a whole lot of stories of both you know students questioning my validity as a teacher uh going through all kinds of changes just with the power dynamic of having a a black man sitting above them in the teacher seat perhaps to other teachers having all kinds of bizarre reactivity around sharing spaces you know so the meditation world reflects our mainstream society you know so if we're having a lot of dysfunction in our mainstream society of course we're having it here in our meditation world and you know it's it's 
beautiful time. I really think that, you know, we will call this the great awakening. And um, in the future, when we look back at this time, uh, we're becoming aware of the sicknesses. And then slowly, I think we're starting to dress the wounds. But, you know, we still have a really far, far way to go. You know, it takes when a lot of people, when there's so much anxiety, you know, it takes courage to heal. You know, it really takes courage. And uh, when there's so much spiritual bypass coming in a society, and people, you know, my colleagues are saying things like, well, I don't see color, you know, and, uh, you know, all the, all the typical you know, spiritual bypass anthems. It's hard to move from that place. So until folks are really willing to undress and really examine their own sicknesses, and I'm not using sickness in the pejorative. It's it's an impermanent state of heart-mind, one that can be healed, but it really requires a full commitment and engagement. Until that happens, we'll still, you know, spin in circles. But I feel like it's happening, you know, slowly or fast, maybe, but it feels slow. <laughs> and um, I, I'm, I'm really honored to be, you know, to any any offering that I might be able to give to help that purification, I'm really honored to be engaged in it. So spiritual bypass is a, a real a rampant disorder that we're are dealing with because white privilege and, uh, you know, able-bodied privilege and gender privilege, all of, all of our privileges kind of become camouflaged in our spiritual practice, it now becomes a feeling of superiority as being a more evolved soul or something. And I've, I've dealt really directly with this with students talking to me about the alienation of their practice because everyone else is so ill-evolved. And um, a real hindrance that we have is because many of us come to the Dharma with wounds, we take refuge in the Dharma and forget how relational this practice is really built on being. I mean, if we all were begging alms, having that interaction and that humbling, you know, <laughs> we'd be in such a different place, I think. You know, we really would in terms of uh, there wouldn't be the same kind of um, sequestering of our spiritual practice. And, you know, it's hard. It's hard to still move in mainstream society and be practicing something with a very ancient tradition and was kind of designed for another time in some ways. And, and many of us not willing to even embrace who Siddhartha and Yasodhara were. You know, I, this is another thing that I come into a lot of dissonance with. And 
I'm not one who's going to stand around and say that Yasodada, um, Siddhartha Gautama's wife, was not a Buddha. I think it's a it's a very primitive primitive interpretation to just demand that she was an arahat and uh, that she wasn't quite a Buddha, almost, but not quite, even though she taught 500, you know, nuns and, you know, was teaching and was, uh, you know, when they describe her death in the suttas, it's, it's uh, identical to Siddhartha's, you give a teaching and then leave the body. You know, it's just like, there's just so much fantasy and so much um, that was lost just from the misogyny, you know, that happened when you decide to create a sector of society that is really geared towards just one gender. Of course, Buddha, you know, is going to be just a male embodiment if, if it's all men. Usually that that's what happens. <laughs> and you can look at all the relations. All the religions are like this. I mean, you know, the Prophet Muhammad's daughter was a prophet, but she can't be because he's supposed to be the last. Anyway, I could go that that's a whole tangent. <laughs> I could go on. But as we're dealing with our spiritual bypass and you know, just feeling like okay, well, we are all one, so I, I don't need to examine my own bias, my own uh, racism, my own ageism, my own gender phobia, transphobia, any, any of my own contractions, because I'm engaged in this, this spiritual practice of interbeing, I am just going to be in the fantasy of interbeing and not the practice of it. You know, part of that is just the mind. The mind is so leaning into concepts. And so we, we attach to concepts and, and especially concepts that make us feel elevated. So we'll, we'll really cling to this concept of interbeing, but we don't experience it. And that's why this is such a shamanic practice. This is only to be experienced. It's not to be just hypothesized and, you know, then concept hoarding. And, you know, uh, some of my teachers, uh, Larry Young and, and Gina Sharp, talk about the decolonizing of the practice. And it's because, you know, Western Buddhism came through conquest. You know, it came through colonization. India, Sri Lanka, Burma, you know, even Thailand, I mean, Thai, the Thai aren't going to say that they're colonized, but what happened was the Dharma was, as we start setting up schools in other countries, you know, so the British Empire was doing that, and school being, you know, the whole British system being all about memorization. And so the lists, all the lists of Buddhism became organized into lists even more so, and you know, became this accumulating knowledge of lists instead of living the practice. And, and you know, this is, I'm not picking on Buddhism. All, all religions suffer from this. What if we were actually living the practice of our prophets and our sages and our Buddhas? What if we were actually living them? 
So few of us are willing to actually. It can be uncomfortable. It can be uncomfortable to genuinely give yourself. And compassion is not a a philosophical thing. It's actually moving towards the actively the ending of suffering and the causes and conditions of those suffering in yourself and others. Well, what's that look like? It looks like action. So it's really interesting. I mean, we have all these revolutionary archetypes, you know, and, and all of these uh, avatars that we love, most of them. And yet, how revolution are we? How much of the revolution are we actively doing in our own lives? How much are we reaching out to others to end their suffering? How much of our own suffering? Why is self-metta so hard? <laughs> Why don't we even practice self-metta? How can we possibly give metta to someone else when you can't give it to yourself? It, there's just so much dysfunction in our practice and in our society. It's, it's comic, you know. An interesting contemplation is our own attachment to myth. You know, our own attachment to the evolution, I guess, of the myth of a prince and a princess who became enlightened, who chose to walk away from his fortune and his palace. You know, I'll never forget during my teacher program and uh, community Dharma leaders, uh, John Peacock came and gave a talk on kind of the, you know, he's a really a great British poly. Uh, scholar, practitioner. So he, he was talking about how, you know, there was no palace. There were no gates for Siddhartha and Yasodhara to be sequestered away from sickness, a monk, uh, death. These are all, this is all just myths, you know, and then they lived in thatch structures. Or, and then, you know, this is very hard for some of our folks from the subcontinent from India to hear, you know, they were like, well, how, how are you going to come and take away our royalty? You know, we're talking about warriors who, you know, a more correct story and kind of like, which I think is much more, you know, speaking to human consciousness. It's like, and especially where we are now, these were warriors who walked away from the military caste. Yes, they were the sons and daughters chiefs in the warrior class, but there, was, there wasn't this kind of classist separation that you have with like royalty when we think of you know, maybe in Europe or, or in China or different other places. This was like, they looked like more like Maasai people or something. It was more like, you know, it was more like, this kind of warrior culture. And, and now we're in this place of, we are in this military culture. Hollywood is based on a military chain of command. I mean, everything, there's just, there's so much military consciousness in everything we do in the corporate world and everything. And we're just like Siddhartha and Yasodhara, we're coming into this awareness of, wow, actually, War is the most ridiculous, barbaric, primitive way to 
engage with one another. I mean, it's it just causes so much suffering. And there's so many innocent people killed. I mean, there, you know, it's just such a weak debate. I'm much more interested in, you know, letting go of Orientalism and, and like our Disney, Disneyfication of, uh, you know, Siddhartha and Yasodhara. And we're, we're dealing with revolutionaries. So if you want to practice, if you really want to practice, how are you going to really engage with society in a way that is transformative? Yes, we're transforming our, our hearts, and we have to start there. But then let's also be aware that we have a calling. If you believe in compassion, if you really feel like that is a way of life that you're going to have for yourself and others, then you, you need a game plan of, okay, well, what is my service going to be here? We all have things that we can do, really simple things. Really simple. I, I tell students this all the time. Like sometimes, you know, I'll give a Dharma talk and students will be like, well, what can I do? Like, what, what, what can I? I was like, do you know any single moms? Do their laundry for them. Get them some groceries. You know, you know, a single parent. Start there. Start with just people in your community. Be, be helped. Help someone out. Do something helpful to someone. You don't know what kind of the chain of, of blessings that could spawn from that in terms of helping out a single overwhelmed parent who then doesn't snap at their child and say something so destructive to their child or use physical punitive punishment. That doesn't happen all of a sudden because someone helped them and they have a little more you know bandwidth and patience because they didn't have to only sleep three hours because they were doing laundry and dishes and you know trying to do their night school or whatever they're doing you know the more that we can impact others and this comes back into real interbeing we're actually consuming society into ourselves so naturally if you're going to practice self-love you're going to practice love of others and and how can you be helpful to yourself and others so it isn't it isn't this isn't a style this isn't just about you know getting uh, really fancy buddhas and having a really nice altar space and going on retreats that give you this like feeling of association with the wise or something and then like through osmosis you're then awakening no it's actually you know really doing the difficult task of looking at our own limitations and seeing what we can do to go beyond them deconditioning this heart our misperceptions and really seeking clarity and actively actively constantly putting ourselves out there to help others as black lives matter has had this second wave and i think a much more impactful one as we've been under the pressure of the pandemic and people having frankly a lot of people just not having work responsibilities and you know it was just like really amazing when you think about it how 
the youth that we were so quick to write off as being just consumed with their own, you know, addictions to social media and their digital gadgetry, the youth came so strong. And we all can learn from this movement towards actively going toward the suffering of others and standing strong and, and creating alliances and, you know, really commitment, just really coming into right effort, you know. So what we have to offer in terms of our practice, those of us who are practicing, you know, the activists are stressed out, you know. This is a thing. It's like part of what happens in our fervor and as activists is we stir the pot of reactivity as well. You know, we, we can really suffer from some of the othering that we're fighting against as we're, you know, like I, I've watched, uh, you know, some activists screaming in the faces of police. The police are sitting there. You know, what I was reading was they were feeling embarrassed because they knew that, you know, I think a lot of them wanted to actually join the protest. Like, they were kind of embarrassed of their profession. They're ashamed of being associated with a lot of mentally ill people who are murdering. You know, you have to come into the consciousness of risking your life to be, you know, going into a profession where you're, you can have bodily harm. Why would you do that? And what happened to you? You know, what happened to your inner child that now you want to prevent injustice physically with force? There's so much abuse in their eyes. You know, if you look into the eyes of our soldiers and our police, if you can't see the wounds, I, I don't know what to say to you, actually. You're just not looking or you don't want to see it. But many of us don't want to see or feel each other's pain in general. So I have compassion for that. But maybe we can. Maybe we can. And so <laughs> we have this collision of the wounded. You know, many of us who are activists have serious wounds that we're like the police in a different way. We're not going to let that injustice keep happening. Just, you know, it's just, it's really, it's the same wound, just different choice. One is going through a, like a military training to, to do it. The other one is going, hanging out with radicals who have a, a looser, you know, acceptance. And, uh, you know, it, it's just, it's a different way to, to be in the same position of, of defending that inner child who had trauma. So, as practitioners, you know, and what the Dharma has to teach is this, this way of really this radical tolerance, this radical self-healing, the, the, these radical tools of self-healing. Because a lot of my, you know, a lot of me included as an activist, we neglect our wounds, we are projecting and completely consumed externally. 
there isn't a lot of balance. And this is in society in general, but this is a time, and even I, I would even venture to say, you know, with the coronavirus, I think there's more meditation probably is happening in this country than ever before, probably, you know, thousand times more, you know, and I'm seeing all these people being called to teach. It's interesting. It's like, it's kind of like, you know, I don't know, like a prospector or like the old West or something. <laughs> like there's, People are just kind of, uh, without formal training, just putting themselves out there, you know, just trying to help, you know, it's coming from a place mostly, I think of like really loving their own experience and self-healing and wanting to share it, you know? And so this is something that I'm hoping and praying that, you know, we can really evolve from this ordeal and share our practices, start looking inwardly, start healing our internal, and then healing the collective. That's what the Great Awakening is. And I do feel we're at the beginning of it. We're at the beginning. We're at, we're at the place, you know, I think that when I look at my parents' generation, LSD was so effective. And then, you know, LSD, heroin, and then crack were so effective from just wiping out the structure and the really the, the cohesion of the movement. You know, you think about Black Panthers doing a bunch of coke and then pulling out bullwhips and like whipping, using punitive, <laughs> punitive measures and whipping each other you know the rastas same thing boatloads of cocaine coming into jamaica and totally disrupting the movement lsd completely uh you know i've people in my family never the same after taking really strong lsd even sometimes given by professors it was just it was just such you know using drugs such a a powerful and effective way to destroy the movement and so now we're in this time of you know going beyond that and actually there's all of this attention to health in a different way we have a, a different consciousness of of health and chemical dependency and you know we've seen family members destroyed by different drugs and alcohol and I think, um, I don't know, I think that we're, we're being primed for a new sense of clarity, a new embracing of clarity and really experiencing this natural high of, of clarity and of being releasing our own wounds. It's a rush, actually. Healing is, is, there's a part of it that's like, you know, as someone who used to abuse marijuana and, and really love the euphoria of marijuana in my 20s there's a euphoria from help self-healing you know and a euphoria from being someone who who's helpful in in some way you know i'd just like to say it's been a real honor to to talk about these things these are all issues really 
dear to me, these issues of how we can make the world a better place without just being sentimental about it, but actually being active and, and engaged and, and really bringing out the best in one another and really, really healing ourselves. You know, so I'm really, really honored to be a part of the conversation. Finally, I have a conversation with Wayne Smith, who is a professional cellist and a long course Vipassana student in the tradition of SN Goenka. To hear some of his music, check out www.arcticmoth.com. That's A-R-C-T-I-C-M-O-T-H.com. As we start the interview, we should mention that for listeners hearing this, they're hearing my voice. Typically on these series, we just hear the voice of the guest. In this format and dynamic, we're having a conversation rather than just hearing from you directly. And maybe before we start, just take a moment to share why, uh, why that format was, uh, was more appealing for you and what you thought was special about having a conversation dynamic instead of just getting your part of um, your perspective and story. Well, I feel like having a conversation at this time, or having conversations, I should say, is really the most important thing. Um, or one of the most important ways that we can evoke a real change and get some real perspective on this. You know, we've all been quarantined, worldwide quarantined for months together, you know, many stimuli removed, a great chance to look inside, you know, to be introspective and see where various aspects of our actions and our thinking and our lives and our, you know, positions have brought us. You know, we're contending with a real lack of control over our environments and so I feel like this gives us a really uh, wonderful chance as a strange silver lining to, to see things in a different way. And now that all these horrific events have transpired, you know, dealing so much in this country with, you know, blatant racism and violence and hatred and division more than anything, I thought that this might be a good time while things are fresh and while things are raw and while we are introspective to actually talk about this as opposed to just solidifying our own ideas unchecked, unchallenged. That was where I was coming from with this. Thanks for that. So let's let's get started off with that. And before we uh, we get into some of the more recent events that have happened and your thoughts on them, let's go back to the beginning. If you can just give us a a brief introduction to who you are, where you came from, how you were raised, and just a, a little bit about your background. Well, I was raised in Westfield, New Jersey. It's a pretty run-of-the-mill, you know, American suburb, you know, not too far from New York City. I grew up in a black neighborhood that was situated in a white town, and I as a part of that, you know, kind of always knew the difference as it were, or always was sort of having those differences thrown at me. And it's not that it completely dominated my experience, but in the context of this conversation, it's what comes up first. Yes. Yeah, so you mentioned the town that you're from. How about your family, your religion, your outlook on life of the, the family culture? Yeah. So I, I grew up in a Pentecostal family especially my extended family was, is quite religious. My immediate family, not so much. So we definitely went to church on Sundays and, you know, my older relatives are, are still fairly religious. 
it was a very sort of there was a strictness about it but my mother was sort of the a little bit more rebellious you know compared to her siblings and so i felt like i did have some some freedoms to choose um i started to rebel against that a bit in my teenage years as many teenagers do and began to look more into eastern philosophy but that wasn't a part of my my family life you know i grew up in a town that was Although it was it was quite divided racially, but I didn't feel a lot of overt racism as a child. Things as I look as I in retrospect, there of course are very like you know clear instances, but I didn't grow up feeling unsafe or anything like this. A part of it was my interests. I you know was in accelerated classes and I played classical instrument, and because of that, I think I was treated differently than the other black kids you know that I was around. And similarly, in my adult life, you know, as a classical musician, you know, many of my colleagues, you know, most of my colleagues were not black. And so it put me in, a, in an interesting position, you know, to kind of, to, you know, to have not the normal black experience, as it were, which is, you know, as we now know, or as I now know, is a myth in and of itself. Right. And you mentioned that you had this early interest in Eastern spirituality and uh, that was different from how you were raised. What form did that take initially and where do you think that interest came from? Well, I, I was somewhat of an outcast who hung out with other outcasts and our, you know, search for normalcy led us to mainly a lot of, uh, you know, Native American philosophies and Eastern philosophies and where those things combined, you know, I had some friends, for example, that were really into Carlos Castaneda and this kind of these ideas of universal oneness, whereas I was sort of a, a naturalist. And I guess I've always been sort of like a, a non-religious universalist where just looking for connections and started reading, you know, some books of the Dalai Lama and Rapolo Baula and Thich Nhat Hanh. And it made sense to me. I didn't embrace it as religion and I still don't embrace religion in and of itself. Uh-huh. But it definitely, it definitely formed help to uh, solidify my ideas, or it gave me a language, you know, through which I could see the world, um, but I could sort of codify my perspective. So eventually, I assume that that interest in spirituality led to some type of meditation practice. Uh, how did that manifest? What meditation practices or or traditions did you find, and when was that? Well, it was in my late 20s really that I started to meditate I'm 47 now and part of the thing that led me to the spiritual search in the first place was of course misery and just this palpable you know understanding of that that I really felt that I could do nothing about and you know I, I believe that's what drove me to music it drove me to you know spiritual searching and it also drove me to drugs or it was the driving force behind, you know, what would be a very debilitating drug addiction that mm-hmm. I, you know, as I learned to address that, you know, I went to a program that talked about loving God, serving others, and, but with God as an undefined, you know, force. And that was sort of, it was, you know, up to us to, to, to search for that. And, you know, for me, I, you know, sort of took some solace in, in some Buddhist writings 
and, you know, started to teach myself, you know, well, start to learn to meditate just based on what I'd seen in books and trying to do whatever I thought that was. And eventually I found a sangha to sit with in Saratoga, New York, that was, you know, getting together each week and practicing guided meditations by Thich Nhat Hanh. And I made friends with some of those people. This was years into my sobriety. And I found it very helpful. However, it, it didn't quite, you know, it, it didn't quite speak to me. It was a relief, but I still felt like it wasn't quite what I was looking for. You know, I gained a lot from it. But so I continued to search and a couple of friends at various times told me about the Vipassana courses and Goenka's tradition. And I sat one of those courses about 12 or 13 years ago. And mm-hmm. that was when my, you know, meditative life kind of began. That was when my practice sort of, it was ignited mm-hmm. in those first courses. Mm-hmm. And you know, right. so what, that was, you know, what led me to what I'm doing today, which is, you know, being very involved at a local center, a local meditation center. I'm, you know, as I said before, I'm a musician, but also I am serving at Damodara, the meditation center in Shelburne Falls, Massachusetts, um, as you know. And, uh, yeah, I feel like all of these, uh, there are a lot of things that I keep saying drove me to meditation, mm. but it really was how it felt because I felt so lost before it. Um, mm. I felt actually quite displaced even in my in my own community, my own racial community, but I also felt separate, you know, from the white community. And so it sort of gave me a, a way to find some refuge within myself. Right. So what changes did you start to see in yourself when you started up the meditation practice? What benefits or insights came in that first few years of of your practice? Well, I began to understand my responsibility in my own story. You know, for some time, it was very blurred for me what I was causing and what was put upon me and how to deal with either of those, you know, so-called realities and meditation really has helped me to to sort of parse those things out you know and to i've gained a lot of just acceptance of who i am in terms of you know having a clearer starting point from which to work on myself both on and off the meditation mat it's given me just some relief from the constant torture that i put myself through and the constant torture that I allow myself or was allowing myself, I still do actually sometimes quite a bit, um, that I, that I allow myself to endure. That's just really quite needless. Right. Right. Yeah. Definitely. One of the main insights of taking up a meditation practice is, uh, the suffering that we're holding onto that we don't need to, and that it's just a question of letting that go, but it, how long it takes to realize that we can let something go that we, we didn't realize that we could. Yeah, so in, in terms of the intersection of, of race and Dhamma practice, which is one of the things we're looking at on this series in, in light of recent events, I'm curious what experiences you had with racism or prejudice prior to your meditation practice and your response or reaction or feeling with that. And then when the Dhamma practice started up and you became a very serious meditator, if you face such incidents again and 
if your inner reaction or way of looking at it was affected in any way by the practice that you were undertaking? Yes, well, I guess at some level, you know, as I practice, it colors all of my experience. The racism I experienced before meditation is the same same racism that I experienced after. Right. Sure. Really, in my case, you know, there were a few larger incidents where, you know, I mean, things like being frequently stopped by the police or people being suspicious of me or, you know, being a child in Georgia and someone just flat out, you know, calling me names that I didn't need to be called as a nine-year-old. You know, things like this have have always gone on. I always, uh, I saw as a child, you know, my parents grew up in the third, they were born in the thirties, you know, they grew up in the forties, fifties, adults, sixties, seventies, all, all of these very, you know, turbulent, difficult times for black people in America. Mm-hmm. And I saw what it did to them, even as a kid. And I would hear them talk sometimes. I, I think in general, they were loving people. And, you know, I don't think that they were the, the most bigoted people in the world, but there was definitely a really strong resentment that they felt, you know, having mm-hmm. gone through Jim Crow, having been the grandchildren of slaves and mm-hmm. the children of sharecroppers, you know, working pretty hard to put me through a fancy education, you know? So I could see how toxic those things were, you know, for them. Mm. And I remember challenging their sentiments when I was a kid, you know, saying, oh, you know, we should be more loving and you, you know, we shouldn't call each other names very, you know, as, as, as naive as possible, (laughs) you know? Mm. Um, I mean, I think these things are true, but I was seeing it from such a naive perspective. I don't know how they even tolerated my my little opinions <laughs> at the time. But I saw that and I resolved that I wouldn't be that way. Mm-hmm. However, as all of this sort of aggression was taken out towards me, you know, but really like some things directly, you know, there's some incidents. I guess we could get into that if you want, but I don't know how how important that is right now. Or just, you know, this idea of me being told that there was a, a very low ceiling of what I could achieve in life, you know, mm. seeing, never seeing images of anyone that looked like me being successful, you know, of walking into my, I remember in junior high school, walking into a, an honors math class with my best friend who was also black and in that class, and the teacher called us up to the front, you know, to check our schedules because he was, he was so certain that we were in the wrong room. You know, he didn't check anyone else's schedules that day. You know, things like this, these kinds of people being suspicious, people, you know, the constant discourtesy as I, as I go out as a consumer. Like I said before, being stopped by the police quite regularly for doing nothing. Mm-hmm. Like all these things... I was trying not to allow it to toxify me, not to allow it to sort of to ruin my perspective. And I was sort of holding on to this naivete. But in the meanwhile, all these things were really bubbling up inside of me. You know, sure, I, sure. I, the kind of person that rather than lashes out, I, I tend to turn these things inward and self-destruct. And I saw what a weakened and defeated person it made me. And I feel like through meditation, I was able to, to see the difference, to get a little bit of objectivity to, you know, to understand what was happening to me. And a part of it 
was that I was denying to myself that I could feel, you know, hatred or that I could feel animosity towards another person. And, mm-hmm. and by doing that, I, you know, that was sort of my defense mechanism that these things almost didn't exist. And so I was trying to preserve myself, but I wasn't really able to, I wasn't really developing compassion. Mm-hmm. And ironically, I guess it would be ironic to some that through meditation, I learned that I too have <laughs> Uh, hatred might be too strong a word, but mm-hmm. that I do have ill will inside. And mm. for one thing, it validated my feelings of, you know, that I had been mistreated, but also it gave me, it gives me compassion to know that, okay, this, these things are inside of all of us, that we all have our story. We all have our background. We have our things and that we've learned. We have our reasons for doing and doing things and for being the way that we are. And so it sort of gives me, um, you know, it makes it a little bit, a little bit easier to understand the villainy. I can't accept it, but the meditation and my practice takes the edge off of it so that mm-hmm. I don't have to walk around defeated, that I can, you know, hold my head up, you know, despite all that's going on and all the, and despite the way that, you know, I'm treated or looked at or thought of. Right. This is really interesting because you're talking about identifying and coming in touch with through meditation, the existence of ill will inside you, which is really just a form of the experience of dukkha that, you know, no one wants to face. And you're, you're facing that presence of dukkha and it's taking on this characteristic of ill will coming from this unjust treatment, this unfair, this consistently unfair and biased treatment throughout your life that is this um, this crushing presence. I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like like it's having this this overbearing presence of this consistent pattern. And what I find interesting in this also is that you're identifying and articulating an experience that is a very common experience across America and its history, but especially prevalent in the conversation today. The existence of this pain, this ill will, this continued bias. And so the question I have for you that I'm really interested in is now as of a passionate practitioner, you have certain tools for identifying this ill well and then working with it in some way. And uh, when we look out in society and this ill well is identified or this experience of dukkha is acknowledged, we see out in the world all the different ways that it's responded to and often responded to out of pain or hurt. And as of a passionate practitioner, I'm really interested in as you began to identify the nature of this existence of dukkha, this this toxic ill will that you're accepting and, and identifying inside, and now you have to work with it. Now you have to do something to observe it or to understand it. And so I'm wondering what shape your practice then took then. And I also invite you, if in my question or my summary, um, I overreached in any way or didn't quite get it right, please do correct me. Otherwise, I'm interested in, in knowing about your experience of identifying and working with that ill will. For me, I I think it's just understanding that I'm not above it. And I feel like something that I would love to see these days is if, you know, if we, if more people took a look at that, you know, I'm not a proponent of thinking anyone should be like me because I I wouldn't wish that upon them. But we all have our own stories. But for me, I think that that maybe is, is the key. Like I said, I believe that people they are at some level doing their best or at the very least they want to look like they're doing their best 
you know, to themselves and to others. And I feel like this deep dive inside, you know, within this turbulence after so much external stillness that we've experienced in the past few months, this deep dive inside is maybe could be something that evokes real change. Like if the, I've had so many friends come up to me very, um, very upset lately. And it's amazing to me how surprised people are, you know, the prevalence and the, the, the regularity at which there's, you know, uh, manifestations of systemic racism, almost as if they didn't realize that it was real. Like it was something that you read about from time to time, but they didn't realize that it was real and uh-huh. didn't realize that it's maybe coming from them too. I'm talking about loving, good-willed, good-hearted people, but uh-huh. we still have these biases and we still, you know, I think everyone has their biases and I feel that, like, especially my white friends in particular have been coming up to me almost more upset than the black people in my life in this particular time. You know, my family and my and the black people that I talk to, you know, we're not as we're, I mean, we're very moved by what's going on, but it's the same thing that's been going on for our entire lives. And it's just it's unbelievable to me that people are suddenly seeing this. What I fear is that we'll make rapid changes that will make broad statements that will take quick actions that will sort of create exoneration of ourselves and our participation in ill will and in hatred and then move on as opposed to really looking inside and seeing where this is coming from seeing where even a kind-hearted person might be benefiting from systemic racism, from holding others down, where, you know, I'm sorry, I'm having a difficult time expressing this. Yeah, take your time. It's very painful to understand when you understand that you're hurting another person. And I feel that in general, when tensions flare, good people res- might respond, but maybe stop short of delving into that, into the depths of that pain. And I, that's what I think we need to do in order to, to turn things around. It's really easy for pain to just turn into anger. You know, many of my black friends and family are very angry. It's also very easy for that that pain to turn into pity, which is what I feel like I'm getting from many of my white friends. Where they're mm-hmm. like, I'm so sorry, a man stopped me in the parking lot of a supermarket that I'd never met before, you know, to to apologize to me. Mm. And I believe that he thought he was doing a good thing, and maybe that's a start. But I didn't feel that. I don't think he was really talking to me at all. You know, it was mm-hmm. more like it was just a search for exonerating, for for separating, distancing ourselves from the problem. You know, signaling that you know I have these virtues, signaling that one has these virtues, as opposed to really 
looking at, you know, how we are implicit mm-hmm. in the system. Right. And that's painful. That's an experience of dukkha, whatever side you're on. That's an experience of coming to face with the suffering within. And it's interesting what you say. You mentioned on your side of black friends leaning in towards anger and on your white friends leaning in towards pity. And I wonder if both these reactions are in some way different sides of the coin that are obfuscating the experience of just feeling and investigating the dukkha within of either side. I think for sure. And I think that's that's why we remain as static as we do, because it's just too difficult. The conversation's too hard. And I think that, you know, people want to figure out how they can feel better as opposed right. to really being better. Right. And meditation, as you well know, is not about feeling better. It's about coming to face with the truth within, which I think when you come out the other side does feel better. But as uh, Sayada Utejaniya in Burma likes to say, as his yogis investigate more and more the reality within and, and find it disconcerting and unpleasant and disappointing in their mind, he laughs and one of his catchphrases is, there's no good news. You know, as you look inside, there's no good news. Trust me, it doesn't get any better, you know, and, and that's kind of a paradoxical thing for those who've never taken a step on the on the path. Those who've gone just a little bit un- understand that experience of dukkha, but Towards those ends, what role do you see Dhamma practice, meditation practice, the Buddhist teachings playing some kind of role, some kind of positive role in this discussion or awareness that can inform or shape the present moment going forward? That we all suffer. And that for, for me, my practice, a very large part of my practice uh, is has to do with serving. And I feel that you know, if I serve people and they can come to their own understandings whenever and, you know, whatever those are, you know, through practicing, then I feel that I've done the right thing, as it were. I think that if we have that meditation and, and you know, Dhamma practice gives us the tools and the courage to look within and it gives us the courage and the tools to look within in an objective way, mm-hmm. which makes it slightly more bearable when the sit is over. <laughs> During it, as you said, there's no good news. I, I remember <laughs> actually, I think I experienced my first real violent thoughts during a meditation retreat, which I was, you know, kind of mm-hmm. surprised and relieved to know I was a human being. But, <laughs> you know, these things are inside. And so I think if we can come to grips with that, then we have a real place from which we can work. As long as we're sort of, you know, beholden to our own sense of beauty and our own sense of, you know, who who we want to seem like, then it's really hard to do any real work because you're starting, we're starting from a place of falsehood. Mm-hmm. And in meditation, we find that, you know, that that falsehood sort of is, you know, is the predominant thing in which we live. Mm-hmm. But it chips away at it. It chips away at it. And, you know, I think also just, there's just a basic part of a part of the teachings is just, you know, understanding, you know, compassion and being able to be empathetic with each other and, you know, turning that empathy into compassion and being able to serve people in an impersonal way. So it's not about taking credit and it's not about, 
getting re- anything in return and not even about getting results, you know, just doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do sometimes. I think that would go a long way. And on the one hand, as I hear myself say it, I feel like some of that naivete that I fought so hard to maintain is uh, coming right out. But mm. it, it is what I think is true, though. Well, it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like what you expressed as a child might have been a, a naivete of the world you want to live in. But what you're expressing now is coming from a place of hard fought spiritual practice to get to a place where you're you're identifying the experience of dukkha and the toxicity and the pain inside and not hiding from it, facing it as best you can, while also making a choice to respond with empathy and service. Right, right. It's just understanding that you can't hurt someone else without hurting yourself. And to see where, if you're deciding to hate someone for any reason, you have to create so much destruction inside to be able to do that. You have to maintain destructive stories in order to do that. And this is where I, this is where I think the meditation helps me and would help anyone, you know, to come out of this. You know, the Dhamma is no different for a black person or a white person. It's just helps us get in touch with, you know, who we are as humans in this moment, you know, and clearly there's enough outside, enough stuff going on outside you know, it's coming from somewhere and it, it always comes from inside. And I feel as though, um, like I said, people are, we're so eager to remove ourselves from being a part of the problem. But mm. if we look inside, we can easily see that, you know, we very much are, you know, involved right. in problems. Right. And as a meditator, having been a serious meditator for many years now and maintaining a practice and the Sheila and everything else, when you're now faced in situations of apparent or overt racism or discrimination or or something else, what is the internal process of using those meditative tools to respond to it? How has that been different than your experience before? I don't get as angry. I don't get as sad. But I, you know, do feel it necessary to, to take some actions and to talk about it. Once I was busking, I was playing in the New York City subways, and a man came up to me, and he, the look in his eyes showed that he and I were not in the same reality. And I'm sitting there playing Bach, and he comes up, and he slaps me. Oh. And the people in the subway were like, we should get him, you know? Some people wanted to go after him. Other mm. people that saw it started immediately giving me bigger tips. Mm. And what I did was I continued playing Bach. And I feel like as a meditator, I've learned better how not to, you know, personalize the hatred that I see coming towards me. Mm-hmm. I learned not to I sort of understand that, you know, that we're I'm seeing a different reality than this person. That mm-hmm. they are on their own trip as it were. And that I don't have to fall victim to it. I don't have to inherit their story. Right. Um, I don't have to be a part of who they are. And you know 
I've, I really have my practice to thank for that. Right. And that's easier said than done. And it's, you know, it makes me think that it's not even so much what you're doing, but how you're doing it, because you're responding with mindfulness and insight and compassion and strength of your own series of choices. I, it reminds me of the story that Goenka tells of someone giving you a gift you don't want to accept and just choosing not to accept it. At the same time, that response could also be done out of weakness or out of fear or out of, out of some other negativity, but not in this case. As I hear that story, it seems not so much a question of, of what you're doing, but how you're doing it and the mind state and how you're choosing to respond to that. And some other meditator could have responded in a completely different way, but with the same sense of non-harm and mindfulness and, and other things. So it's not like there's one formula to bring to bear, but it's the mindfulness that you bring to the moment and what can be very difficult moments sometimes. Yes, I think without that, then I would be defeated on a daily basis by all this. Yeah. You know, um, some days are better than others. <laughs> And mm -hmm. it's tiring sometimes. It's exhausting to just, you know, have so many tiny things over the course of a day or a week or a month, you know, add up where someone, you know, has treated me clearly in a different way because and clearly mm -hmm. I'm black. And it's not mm -hmm. even always out of malice. Sometimes it's just un out of just not knowing what else to do. You know, people, as I live in a rural area. There are not a lot of black people here. And so just sort of inspiring discomfort in people based on nothing I've done. Um, mm -hmm. And and sometimes it's worse than that. You know, that's giving, you know, really giving the benefit of the doubt to others. But it's, it is exhausting. But at the same time, you know, there's only so much energy that I have, right? And as much as possible, you know, I don't want to allow myself to be victimized. I've been mm -hmm. fortunate, you know, that I haven't been in a situation that was, that was so severe that it, you know, completely changed the direction of my life. You know, I've never been attacked or anything like this. Sure. And, I mean, I have had, you know, some things happen. Like when, when I was 19, I was pulled over in a traffic stop and I had a, a small firecracker in my car and I got a ticket for it and didn't think about it again until 2014 when I applied for a job. They did an a, a FBI check and it showed that I had an explosive weapons charge oh, no. for a single firecracker. Mm. You know? So, you know, there are things like that where maybe people were a little bit more out to get me than I realized at the time. But mm -hmm. in, gen in general, you know, I've tried to live in a way that surrounds me with kind people. And mm -hmm. my immediate circle, I've been very fortunate to have that experience from people of, you know, many races, many cultures, I should say at least. But leaving that bubble, you know, there's a bit of tension that goes with it in this country and in every country I've been to. And I don't know, you can fall prey to it and have it, you know, erode your moral compass or some people are, are more activists. For me, I'm, I'm more pacifist and try to, you know, interact kindly with people one at a time and hoping that that, you know, makes some change. You know, I try to look inside and keep things 
impersonal at that level when it comes to these things. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not always so easy. You know, these past few months have been very difficult, you know, just bringing so much to light. Just, you know, sometimes there's just sometimes, sometimes it is, you know, ignorance is bliss sometimes. Right. And mm-hmm. I definitely do spend some time in life ignoring these things, but more and more as I get older, I feel more able to act against it without being, you know, damagingly reactive. Right. And do you feel that it's your meditation practice that's helping you inform that kind of response or just normal maturation or growth? Or where would you say that's come from? Oh, I think it's absolutely my meditation practice. Maturation doesn't force us in any particular direction. <laughs> right, right. So I, I feel that definitely it's it's my practice and looking inside and you know, understanding the mental processes that are inspired by stimulus that comes from outside of me, you know, as, as coldly as that. And, you know, going about my business with that understanding. I don't have time to, to analyze every one of these little reactions or every one of these little interactions. So I think using my practice as a whole helps me get through it all. Right, right. And on that subject of practice, you know, with the impetus of recent events, many people as well as social and cultural institutions have been starting this month to seriously examine themselves for implicit bias and whether even unwittingly they might be contributing to the perpetuation of social inequities. Many people are coming to realize that however much we think we know, we all need to become better educated and empathetic about race and injustice. So one such institution that might require more scrutiny is the the passion movement and mindfulness movement. And you had spoken about that, your own inner practice being a refuge to you, but the overall movement does lack people of color and teachers of color. And it was largely formed by white hippies, you could say, that found the Dhamma in India and brought it back. And however unwittingly might have perpetuated certain kind of unexamined assumptions about how the teachings were to be disseminated. And I wonder, uh, you know, when you when you close your eyes, the practice is definitely internal and it's your own work and you, your own instructions that are doing that work. But when you open your eyes and you're you're in the community that you're in and receiving the teachings that you're receiving, I wonder what that experience has been like. Have you found it welcoming and conducive for non-white audiences? Or do you think that there's room to grow in that area? At one point, you know, I guess this could have been said of white people as well, right? Maybe in the 50s, they would say, well, you know, there are not a lot of white people practicing Dhamma. So, you know, is that an inequity? And so mm-hmm. I, I think it spreads as it spreads. And I don't find that to be a... The fact that there are not a lot of black people involved in insight meditation, I don't find that to be an inequity. I think that mm-hmm. people and cultures come to things as they as they do and as they need to, as long as they're welcomed if they try to, you know. And definitely, you know, at the center where I am, and I mean, maybe this might be a vast assumption, but I would assume at any, you know, Dhamma center where they're really practicing, that anyone would be allowed to come there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a part of me cringes at the sentiment that that the Dhamma needs to be handed to this group of people or that group of people or else they wouldn't be able to get it. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's doesn't sound natural. It, it, it sort of separates 
one group of humans from another in a way that doesn't really have a lot of basis. Right. I know at one point there was some talk in our tradition of doing, actually there was actually a course for the African diaspora that took place in India, but there was some talk of doing that in the States. And I, I think it's well intended, but at the same time, it's, I think it's really maybe born out of bias and perhaps born out of some guilt. I feel like for, for me, my role in that is like, you know, I've started meditating and so now my sister has come to see the chorus and I can talk to my nephew about it and I have a cousin that's interested in coming and I had a friend that was going to come see the chorus and, you know, passing it through my community that way. And also just by if people see the change in you, then they become interested in it. Some people, you know, people who are attracted to those types of changes. And so I think that it will eventually spread through the black community, the way it spread through communities in Asia and the way that it spread through, you know, the hippie movement and the way that it spread through what's mainly sort of, it seems like a upper middle class white communities in, in the States. Um, just the, it's still a bit remote for people here, you know, being able to take off days at a time to meditate is not a luxury that everyone has. Um, so I think that in the black community, there are some, there are some economic barriers. There are also some religious barriers as well, because mm -hmm. there's still quite a very strong, you know, Christian rule in the black community, but I don't see it as particularly problematic, but I see it as just kind of where we are right now. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of, it's sort of as if, uh, you know, we're not beggars, you know, right. And, right. So it's, it's not that you have to hand something to someone because you think it's good for them. I think that if more people use whatever their spiritual practices, you know, that's what helps. It's not about getting other people to, to do what I'm doing necessarily. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So do you think that there could be a call for more outreach to go to, unrepresented communities and look at how to reach some of those peoples and community better? Or are you more of the opinion that these things are just going to have an organic spread and Dhamma is just going to move as Dhamma is going to move and it'll just happen naturally? Well, again, I disagree with the, even the term of community being underrepresented. You know, I mean, there, we all have our own culture. So I don't think that's a real situation in my in my mind maybe if you're talking about medical care or education or employment opportunities then you can look to underserved communities in those areas but when it comes to a spiritual practice i think that it's important that things grow organically and naturally and that we sort of understand that people find things Spiritual, spiritually speaking, I think that people will find things if they're if they're looking, they'll find it as they need it. You know, I know many people from all kinds of faiths that practice the tenets that we talk about in Dhamma without having ever meditated for a minute. And I know many people right. who meditate, and I know myself who has meditated and has fallen short of those ideals. So. I think it's important not to codify righteousness too much, but that we are just sincere in our own, in our own practices. And so 
I, of course, I would, I would love to see more black people meditating. And it thrills me to no end when I see black people coming to the center, which is more now than there used to be. But I don't feel the need to, to make it happen faster in the black community. Right. So one question on the current protests that are happening. So some detractors have criticized some of the violence and the looting that's taken place during these protests, even though others have pointed out that these could have been caused by agents or provocateurs. But in any case, some commentators have also defended that even if this is taking place and it's not ideal, it might be the only way to really bring about the much needed attention necessary for change in this country. As a meditator who understands the role of Sheila and Dhamma practice, where do you stand on this issue? I don't think that violence is the answer in any case. I don't think that violence is, is a good answer in any case. I understand that it happens and sometimes it has to happen in order to, you know, make for a change. But I think in the long run is not an effective way to make change in, you know, in a movement of racial equality. I think that it helps people who already were looking down, helps them prove their own points. Mm-hmm. I'm so skeptical of anything that I see. I know that for sure there was looting and I know that for sure there are protests, but so much of the the coverage of all these events is, is just done in a way that's, you know, just commercially beneficial, you know? So it, it's sort of, uh, I feel that whatever, you know, whatever the media can do to divide us, you know, helps the media to exist. And so, you know, I think that we hear about it so much because of that. But yeah, I absolutely think that it's wrong. You know, I get the sentiment. I, I've seen some people interviewed where they expressed why they might loot in their in their own places and just as a desperate, desperate reaction to just being stepped on for generations. Mm-hmm. So I can understand that, you know. I can't emotionally identify with it so much because that's just not a part of my day to day, but I can see where it's inside of me, you know? Um, and so mm-hmm. I, I can understand where it's, where it's coming from, but I think it's wrong. I think it's absolutely wrong. Again, I think it just sort of exacerbates the problem. Um, and it adds another problem, you know, it's, it's just, you know, inflaming things. Right. 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 Well, that's all I have here. Is there anything else you'd like to add or any other observations that weren't covered by the questions? I don't think so. Thank you for, uh, you know, of course, you know, it's your discretion to do what you'd like with these, with this interview, but I appreciate talking to you about it and that you're, you know, appreciate, you know, the, the sentiment of, of getting this out there. And I, something I wanted to do during, you know, in talking was to just, avoid the grand statement mm-hmm. whenever it comes to a platitude the truth is just lost mm. you know it's sort of it's like the indirect enemy of, of introspection you know right but i do thank you for for having me on and for taking the time to have this conversation and yeah thank you i wish you all the best Great. Well, I thank you so much for this and for your time. I thank you for your honesty and vulnerability, and I've really enjoyed this. Thank you for checking out this episode of the Insight Myanmar podcast. 
We hope that you are enjoying the special podcast series exploring the intersection between race, social justice, and Dhamma practice. This show brought you the voices of some meditators of color who reflect on their experiences with both implicit and explicit bias in the mindfulness movement, as well as the society's systematic racism, the present social protest movement, and the importance of a Dhamma practice when facing these issues. We hope this content provides insight, interest, and inspiration. Regular listeners to our podcast may know that our usual episodes feature sit-down interviews with a single guest, but we felt the current moment was so important that we wanted to diverge from our usual content to bring you this current series. However, in diverting our limited donation funds for these episodes, it has put a strain on our finances going forward. We know this is a difficult time for many and that there is an added financial strain as well. That being said, we appreciate any amount of generosity you are able to give to keep our engine going. While all of our podcast contributors are meditators, who are either volunteering their time in full or providing substantial discounts, there is still a baseline financial need to cover overall expenses. Whatever funds we are able to collect now will be used solely for producing these new episodes. Any additional donations will allow us to increase our run. With that, thank you for your support. Stay safe and be well. We welcome your contribution in any amount, denomination, and transfer method. You may give via Patreon at patreon.com slash insightmyanmar, via PayPal at paypal.me slash insightmyanmar, or by credit card by going to insightmyanmar.org slash donation. In all cases, that's Insight Myanmar, one word, I-N-S-I-G-H-T-M-Y-A-N-M-A-R dot org. You have been listening to the Insight Myanmar podcast. We would appreciate it very much if you would be willing to rate, review, and or share this podcast. Every little bit of feedback helps. If you are interested, you can subscribe to the Insight Myanmar podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, please check out our website for a list of our complete episodes, including additional text, videos, and other information available at www.insightmyanmaronword.org. If you cannot find our feed on your podcast player, please let us know and we will ensure it can be offered there. There was certainly a lot to talk about in this episode, and we'd like to encourage listeners to keep the discussion going. You can make a post, suggest a guest, request specific questions, and join in on discussions on our Insight Myanmar podcast Facebook group. You are also most welcome to follow our Facebook and Instagram accounts by the same name. If you're not on Facebook, you can also message us directly at burmadama at gmail.com. That's one word. B-U-R-M-A-D-H-A-M-M-A at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to start up a discussion group on another platform, let us know and we can share that forum here. We would also like to take this time to thank everyone who made this podcast possible, especially our two sound engineers, Martin Combs and Tharng A. There's, of course, Zach Hessler, content collaborator and part-time co-host. Ken Pransky helps with editing. Dragos Bandita and Andre Francois make our sketches. GPU does our Burmese translation. Herman Perez, Santiago Hedar, and Marisol do our Spanish translations. And a special Mongolian volunteer who was asked to remain anonymous does our social media templates. We'd also like to thank everyone who assisted us in arranging for the guests we have interviewed so far. And of course, we send a big thank you to the guests themselves for agreeing to come and share such powerful personal stories. Finally, we're immensely grateful for the donors who made this entire thing possible in the first place. 
We also remind our listeners that the opinions expressed by our guests are their own and not necessarily reflective of the host or other podcast contributors. Also, this recording is the exclusive right of Insight Myanmar podcast. It is meant for personal listening only and cannot be used without the express written permission of the podcast owner. This includes any video, audio, written transcript, or excerpt of any episode. That said, we are open for collaboration, so if you have a particular idea in mind for sharing any of our podcasts or podcast-related information, please feel free to contact us with your proposal. Finally, we welcome your contribution in any amount, denomination, or transfer method. You may give via Patreon at www.patreon.com slash insightmyanmar, via PayPal at www.paypal.me slash insightmyanmar, or by credit card by going to www.insightmyanmar.org slash donation. In all cases, that's Insight Myanmar one word, I-N-S-I-G-H-T-M-Y-A-N-M-A-R. If you'd like to give especially to support our new run of coronavirus episodes, please go to the GoFundMe site and search for Insight Myanmar to find our campaign there. If you are in Myanmar and would like to give a cash donation, please feel free to get in touch with us. With that, thank you for listening, and we welcome back next show.